There are 9,500 Jewish organizations in the United States. 75% of those leaders who are leading those organizations will turn over in the next five years. From Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in Jewish philanthropy and in the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories and by getting to know the people that shape and change our field. We also use this opportunity to spread ideas that can help Jews and givers to change the world. Our guest today is Gali Cooks, the inaugural president and CEO of Leading Edge. Leading Edge is a very interesting experiment. It's an unprecedented partnership between Jewish foundations and federations to build a robust talent pipeline for Jewish organizations. It stands for the realization that the Jewish community is going to be as strong as its leadership. Gali herself is a phenomenal leader in the Jewish community. Her background spans the public, private, and nonprofit sectors, and she is a leading voice in the effort to make the Jewish community properly value and understand the people who make the institutions work. Whether you are a funder, a professional, or a community member, you'll find a lot to learn and value in this conversation as I have. So let's get to it. Thank you, Gali, for being here. My mother always asked me, when is it time for me to get a real job? <laughs> Because I work in the Jewish community and that's not a real job. So my father said almost exactly the same thing until he, uh, he saw what I did in the day-to-day. And I think in, in some cases in the 20th century, that might have made some sense. But as we look at the changing nature of work, all of the work that can be automated is slowly being taken over by robots and computers and AI and all of that. That means that all the creative work, all the work of the problems that still need to be solved, certainly social problems that need to be solved, and that is the plurality of the work, the nonprofit sector, and certainly the Jewish nonprofit sector, that's people. That's like the work that we do every day. So the, the hard part is, is that it's, it's hard to translate the work that we do because it's not you know, input in, output out, and it's a one-to-one, very clear line. It's relationship building. It's working on social types of processes. It's what I like to say is two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. And I would argue that the 21st century, this is the job. Like these are the jobs that at least for people to hold and not managing robots who are going to be stocking our shelves or treating our patients or picking our stocks for that matter. And yet the perception yeah. is that these are not real jobs. Right. right. What do you think can be done to, to change that perception? You know, I'm thinking a lot about that perception because perception is reality in so many ways. And as we think of the different jobs that have captured the imagination of different generations, whether it is, you know, a generation ago to say you were an entrepreneur was like, okay, so you're an employee, right? Yeah. So like, what would it be like a generation from now to say, I run a nonprofit or I run a social service agency or I run a social enterprise for that matter that happens to not have, to have a triple bottom line. 
And I wonder if some of that is, is about our popular culture. So seeing people like mythical creatures like Steve Jobs, like Jeff, like Jeff Bezos, like um, Elon Musk, thinking about the types of people who are doing this work and, and really elevating them. And we see some of that in, in if I think of um, Wendy Kopp, yeah. you know, Teach for America. Like, can we build something that really doesn't just push around value, creates value for society? I wonder if there's a, a way to be able to showcase that. I think a lot of that has to do with stories. Like, what are we telling people when, you, when we're coming home for Thanksgiving? What are we telling our parents? What are we telling our parents' generation? If you're not a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, or an entrepreneur, like, what are you telling them? Uh, and I wonder if, if that could be a fun exercise to think about. Aren't we, we meaning communal professionals, a little complicit on devaluing our, our own jobs? Totally. Totally. I think you're on to something. When I first started Leading Edge, there was this trope of like kvetching that just mm -hmm. ended up. And at one point, I think I might have said to you or it was another colleague, like, can we start kvetching about what we're doing? Like enough of the kvetching already. Yeah. There is a certain level of pride. And I think to some extent, it has to do with the nonprofit sector in general. We have this inferiority complex, which, you know, you worked at IBM. I went to business school. I worked at a tech startup. It's not like these people are smarter. You know, like if anything, resourcefulness is the new smart. Yeah. It's it's not just the resources to be able to do. Oh, if anything, work in the corporate sector is much easier. Exactly. Exactly. It can be a lot. There's a lot more plug and play, a lot more of a of a of a path that's laid for you. What makes it easier to work in the private sector, in the corporate sector, than in the nonprofit sector, and specifically in the Jewish nonprofit sector? Yeah. What I saw when I worked at the private sector, so first there is there is a clear objective. The folks who I was working with wanted to make money. They weren't always honest about that, Andres. Like they were like, oh, we want to solve education for the world, but there was a more a clear objective. And there were also more off-the-shelf kinds of tools and products and uh, tracks, really. So if you're a new manager, like you can get sent, if you're part of Deloitte, you can get sent to their Dallas University to be able to train. I think the, the pathways are just more known and there's more resources to actually spend on. Like one of the things that when we started Leading Edge, and as you know, as one of our founding board members, there's there's such an industry about leadership development and the private sector spends 75 times more per person when you're in the private sector, you're actually invested in more than in, in the nonprofit sector. I think that there is also a social definition of value that it's not in line with what we do. In other words, what creating value means. And in many cases, consciously or unconsciously, we associate creating value with the Earning more money. money yeah. And and so somehow if you're not earning more money, if you're not creating a stakeholder value in 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 financial terms, you're not valuable enough yourself. Mm -hmm. Like somebody that works at Philip Morris and does cigarettes and that actually kill people right. is considered to be creating more value than somebody who saves people. Yeah. 
And, uh, and I think that the other thing is that I remember when I worked for IBM, there were political intrigues. Every organization had the same thing, but there wasn't the same level of emotional attachment to the world that I see in nonprofits and especially in Jewish, in Jewish organizations. Do you think that's part of the problem or? I think that could be part of the solution. Like that's what we see is, especially millennials, they are interested more in meaning than in money. And that, it used to be that you had to choose a career path or a path for a paycheck that either had meaning baked into it. So the passion was the thing and the purpose was the thing that really drew you in. And that's why we are so passionate about our work. And it's not all about the numbers and the money. Or you were all about the money. And millennials are really the first generation we are told by social scientists and, and demographers that are saying, you know what, I don't have to compromise. It doesn't have to be meaning or money. I can actually blend it. And that's where we get B corporations. That's where we get social enterprises. And I think that's part of our solution. Like we, if we know that top talent, leaders who can really help us solve some of society's biggest problems, actually want to make the world a better place in a real way, not in a like, sure, I want to do that, but really what I want to do is get rich. <laughs> then like, that's fantastic. Like, we actually have options for doing that. You can't look at organizations like AJWS or ADL or Ben the Arc or all the others that I can't even think about, the joint, and say they're not making the world a better place. So it's more about like, what is the story that we're telling these folks who have options? Right. They can go to work at Google on their next secret whatever and make the world a better place through algorithms if they want. So what's, what's our value proposition? seems that those people that would really be able of making the world a better place are actually busy making us click on ads. Exactly. And, exactly. Uh, it's a tragedy. It really yeah. is. The pendulum is swung. We've, we've been doing a lot of listening to podcasts actually at, at Leading Edge about just the future is like the future of work. What's the future of work look like? Like, we know that a lot of the work is already being automated. We know that a lot of the kinds of skill sets that we need and, and the, the workplace culture and, and the structure. And the issue is that you've got some of the most amazing people who are, like you said, they're making us addicted to our phones, addicted to enter entertainment. And there is no value, to your point, like what is the value that they've created? And I think we're going to start seeing more of these folk being like Tristan Walker, like saying, yeah. you know, calling BS and saying, guys, what are we doing here? The, the other element, I think, when we compare the corporate sector with the Jewish sector is that, you know, I'm working with funders. I know that funders tend to be reluctant to fund what they call overhead. Whereas in a, in a corporation, you would say spending a lot of overhead in, say, training your employees is a good thing. In the nonprofit sector, especially in the Jewish sector, you're going to say, oh, I have very high overhead because I train my people very well. Mm -hmm. The funders are not going to want to fund that. Right. Yeah, that is one thing. As we've been doing work with, especially funders and boards, to work to work on this leadership pipeline question. How do we attract and retain the best and the brightest? 
And one of the barriers is exactly what you point to, which is this artificial notion that a nonprofit organization that is well run somehow has an overhead rate, i.e. salaries, rent, toilet paper, whatever, not program directed costs that somehow are below 10% or 20%. I think Ford Foundation is actually the one who said, you know what, 20% is, is a little, at least better than the 10%. And it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Like there, there are all these parodies about, you know, if if you were to patronize a pizza store in the way that you give money to a nonprofit, it would be like, I want the right hand corner of the pizza pie, but don't use that oven because I don't like that oven and that guy can't get a tip and get a break. You know, it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And you're right that the corporations wouldn't look at the equivalent of like their SGA costs, no one cares if you're creating value. So let's get clear on the value. Right. And funders would be contradictory because on the one hand, they would tell you, I don't want to invest on on training and anything that smells of overhead. But on the other hand, they will be the first to recognize that the only predictor of a successful grant, of a successful investment, or a successful nonprofit in general, is the quality of the leadership implementing it. 100%. We, we talked about millennials in the workforce. Yeah. Millennials are going to be led in a very different way that our generation was led. The type of leadership that is functional to our day and age is very different to the type of leadership that was functional to the 20th century. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? It's a really interesting point because for the first time in history, we have four soon to be five generations working together in the workplace. And it's true, like you've got the silent generation that's still amazing and doing what they need to do. The boomers who, they're not retiring anytime soon. Like they really aren't. They're creating too much value and are too valuable, I would argue, for that to happen. And then there's Generation X and Millennials and soon Z, which I mean, they're, they're some of the most intrepid entrepreneurs. And what we see a lot of the time as we work with organizations, especially on how to change their workplace culture so that they have the kind of environment, psychological safety, innovative spirit to be able to do the best work that people need to do, is you have different ages that are managing teams. You have a lot of younger folks who are actually managing folks who are older a lot of the time. So a lot of like the paradigms that we grew up with, paying your dues and all this stuff, it's they're flipping. They're really changing. And the way that it's most pronounced that we see it is that we really are moving from an age of the career ladder to a career lattice. The organization doesn't have a loyalty to the employee and vice versa. The employee doesn't have as much loyalty to the organization. And that means that we've got a lot of folks who are collecting skills, who have tours of duty in the workplace and they jump around. And the management structure of our organizations, therefore, have to be a lot more flexible. Like we really no longer have the kind of regimented, almost like synchronicity that happened in the 20th century that really is factory-like. Now there's a lot more unpredictability and what Stanley McChrystal calls in his book, Team of Teams, a swirl. We're no longer clockwork. And that means that managers have to answer that call, which means that it's much more of a coaching and consultative type of management relationship, not a top-down, 
command and control, hierarchical kind of, you do what I say and pay your dues in order to climb the ladder. So in a way, it is as if we're changing the metaphor. An organization in the 20th century, the metaphor was probably the army. Yes. Like it was highly pyramidal. You had very vertical in the way that, uh, that the uh, information flowed. Uh, everybody had one very clearly defined task and one very clearly defined boss. Mm-hmm. So if the army as a metaphor is no longer relevant, yeah. what is the metaphor that we should be using today? So I would say it's one of a gardener. Like you really are, you're sowing your seeds. You really are. You're planting certain seeds with your folks. And yet, in our community imagination, when we think about a successful leader, the ones that come to mind are these alpha male and they're all male types that, um, that are command and control. Yeah. We sort of lionize that model. And the other model, they collaborate and connect, that somehow does not have yet the same currency yeah. as some of the mythical command and control types. Yeah. I would say that's like with society. In some cases, it's with society in general. So if you look at a leader, if we look at like the tech sector, we look at a leader like Tony Shea from Zappos. He's an introvert. He leads from behind. He's not one of these bombastic, you know, Steve Jobs types of folks. And I wonder if the leaders of the 21st century are going to be folks who recognize that we can't do it all. You have to have a complementary team of leaders that are also contributing to whatever your end is. In some cases, to have the, like, the sage on the stage is just clearer. Like you have one CEO, the buck stops with him, and it's usually a him, you're right. And that is the person who's going to rally the troops and, and be, able to, to be able to point to him as, as like our savior. And there is a shift. The new leaders in the Jewish community that are being successful are actually, they're not territorial. They think that sharing is the new owning, and right. there's something very 21st century about it, right. isn't it? Yes, that's a very, it's like the collaborative economy. Yeah, and it's not zero sum. Let's let's talk a little bit about women in positions of power in the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, we know there's a pay gap. We know very few of the top positions in the Jewish community are filled by women. I'm sure that occupies you yes, a lot. Yes, we ask. So. We ask a lot of our, a lot of our work is uh, yeah. is looking at just like the leadership pipeline in general and how are we not bringing Jews of color and just how can it be more representative of the community? And there are several hypotheses, and these are things that we're going to be looking at a lot more closely. One is when we look at leadership roles, there is this this paradigm of leadership of like super. Like, this is the person who is going to make our organization, and if it's a community-wide organization, then it's the entire community, thrive. That's a really tall task for anyone to do, and for women who we know are 
more realistic, maybe honest about their strengths and weaknesses, they look at that and they say, oh my God, I don't want to be on 24-6. So our hypothesis is it's the system. It's not the women. So let's not fix the women. Let's fix the system. CEO roles and tenures in, in general are shrinking. These are huge jobs that one cannot do well for a sustained amount of time without burning out. So let's look at their job descriptions so that we're not looking for unicorns like we've had conversations about this at Leading Edge about just like these are mythical creatures who are going to you know, be able to save the world. We really think it's about the position. So in other words, what makes the job more attractive for women mm-hmm. makes the job more attractive, period. Yes. Meaning flex time is not only good for women, is yes. good for the quality of life of anybody working in that position. Absolutely. And an honesty that one person cannot lead by him or herself, an organization that's complex and large, which means you need to have a team. It's, it's something, so Joe Canfer likes to say, it's a leadership molecule. It's a molecule. It's a team effort. Yeah. Let me push on the women issue a little bit. Do yeah. you think, do you believe in some form of quote-unquote affirmative action to deliberately bring more women to positions, of, of, to CEO positions, to C-suite positions? I believe in the rule of threes when any underrepresented group is being considered. So we know from research, and this is out of, there's a behavioral economist at Harvard whose name escapes me, but she wrote this book, What Works? And she basically said, whenever you have an underrepresented, like a minority, and when you're hiring for a CEO role, you need at least three candidates, not the token Jew of color, not the token Orthodox Jew, not the token woman, to be considered for a CEO role. What I would advocate and, and we recommend to CEO search committees when they reach out to us is you have to have three strong women candidates, three strong Jew of color candidates. There could, of course, be a woman Jew of color, but you can't just have one. Because then it's like the definition of tokenism. You have, all right, we checked off our box. We looked at one dynamic woman, or maybe there's one finalist. And then you can't compare apples to apples. So I don't think it's, I I still very much believe in the best candidate should absolutely get the role. And I believe that the systems that we have in place to draw job description for CEOs and look for them, like the actual search process, is not stacked in favor of those who are underrepresented in those rooms. What do you think disincentivize people, women and men, to stay in the field? I mean, our field has a huge turnover. Yeah. I mean, you, you studied yeah. this, you yeah. talk to a lot of people. So from your, both statistically and anecdotally, what do you think is the main drivers of dissatisfaction in the field? Yeah. So statistically, and we have studied this, and we've now polled about 10% of the workforce in the Jewish community. When we ask them, they say, look, I want more pay or I'm leaving. I want some kind of career path or I'm leaving. And I want work-life balance. Okay. All very valuable and, and valid. When we actually look at the folks who are satisfied and engaged in their work and those who are not, the biggest gaps are confidence and leadership. So there could be, and we pause it, 
that the leader, like you said, is the single most important, like the people who are trusted with driving the bus, navigating it, are the ones who are going to attract and retain the best, the best talent and develop them and not put them in a corner and say, it's convenient for me that you remain my office manager forever when they see a spark of growth in them. Now, anecdotally, I would say there's also a, an image problem. Right. Like the Jewish nonprofit sector doesn't have the best map. And, and so when I, as a talented individual who could work at Google or Teacher America or Jewish Day School, have my pick, what is going to attract me to work at a Jewish Day School that's different than Teacher America, that's different than Google? And that's where I think the Jewish nonprofit sector really suffers more from the some of the kvetching and, and the complacency, like you said, of the nonprofit sector in general, which we can change with the right stories, but it's yeah. it's really horrible branding. Like we just have a bad brand. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of whether somebody would leave this specific field, I think that there is a there's a structural problem that you alluded to in the past, which is today a person will have a career of 60 years. Yeah. Like the traditional model was, you know, zero to 20 you learn, 20 to 40 you make your career, 40 to 60, you sort of are in a leadership position, mm -hmm. and 60, you retire. Today, like it's all mixed up, and you're going to be working until your 70s and your 80s. So how do you keep somebody motivated for 50 years? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a difficult proposition. Yeah, for sure. Part of it is, you know, we talked about the lattice kind yeah. of thing. So what does that mean operationally? Like how does GE become not a ladder, but a lattice, or IBM for that yeah. matter. Some of it is like seeding innovation. So really having, having different outlets for talent to be able to say, you know what, I'm kind of bored now that I've done this two, this year, this thing for two years. And what are the other avenues? Like career development is not just, you know, I want to get paid more. It's I want new challenges to be able to stimulate me and new problems to solve. And we have plenty of those in the Jewish community. Many problems. But for that... Jewish organizations need to be less proprietary about their human resources. Absolutely. Like if I am in Hillel, I could see that somebody can go to the JCC and that will be good for their careers and they will keep them motivated, but I need to be willing to let that person go and hope that they will come. Like exactly. Ultimately, if we all share, we all win, but exactly. we have to get who's the first to share instead right. of the tragedy of the commons in a way. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the things that we're trying to very slowly and incrementally shift is the scarcity mindset, zero sum, hunger games kind of thing of like you poached my talent or whatever. No. What we need to do is we need to make sure that there's a robust in incoming talent so that if somebody leaves, it is celebrated. It isn't like, oh, my God, you you have somehow betrayed me and now I'm not going to give you a reference, which too often is the case. We see actually in, in organizations that do have a healthy pipeline and a feeder system, there isn't that mentality. So one organization that comes to mind is, is APAC. Yeah. There is a certain structure there where it's it's really structured in some way like a pyramid. I don't know if that's how they would classify it, but it is. You've got like the junior staff is comes in from their leadership development program. It's high school and college age kids who are very passionate about 
U.S.-Israel relationship and all of that. You come in, there's an internship program that's incredibly competitive. You also have like a different legislative assistant strata to that. And you just know that like that's a, that's a position you're going to get for a year or two and then you move on. But you're still like as a former APAC employee, I'm still a proud APAC employee. Right. And if there's, so what might that look like for our entire community? Right. Now, let's talk now about something that is an easy topic. No. Not something not conflictive at all. Lay leadership. Oh my God. <laughs> or rather, the relation between lay leadership <laughs> the and professional. Topic. A safe topic. Nobody can say this in convenient. Okay. So here is something that for me exemplifies the issue with lay leadership in the Jewish community. In a hospital, let's say you serve in the board, in, in the board of governors of a hospital, you're not going to stand behind a surgeon and tell him, cut there, so there, you know. Whereas in the Jewish community, you're going to do that. You're going to stand behind the Federation CEO, and you're going to tell him what needs to be done. And you, of course, know better than he does. And I'm actually being self-critical, too, because I'm a professional, but I'm also a board member, and I do that. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you explain that? You know, in so many ways, the leadership pipeline and and that group of this equation of professionals and lay leaders leading our nonprofits needs as much support as the professional side. So how do we explain that? Number one, we believe that if lay leaders were given the kind of support that really any person should get when they get into leadership positions, that that might help. The second is what are norms for our boards? There, there is a certain aspect to our field that operates like a family business industry. Right. And that means that the personal and the relational in many ways supersedes process. And it's like the whoosh, it's like the, you know, the instinct is yeah. the thing as opposed to the skill of like, no, I actually know how to do surgery. So how can we inject some of that rigor into it? And seriousness, real seriousness. Some of that is a function of, in the same way that we have a professional leadership pipeline deficit, or challenge, we have one on the lay leadership side too. Like one of the lay leaderships we both work with said, if you have a pulse and a checkbook, you're a lay leader. Exactly. So, so part of it is creating procedures yeah. and norms. Yeah. The other one is, I would say, creating cultural exactly. you know, norms or patterns of how this relationship works. Do you, do you find that the lay professional relationship is a factor of... Burnout in the huge, in the community huge huge huge. When we looked at the the so the ten thousand employees that we've now surveyed, forty two percent of them said that their lay leadership embody the values and the mission of their organization, which means that more than half don't. And there were some comments to suggest that. And remember, confidence in leadership is one of the key drivers of if right. you're going to stay. So absolutely, we see that the board culture, the board share, it's huge. In the same way that we look at the professional side, so the CEO is important, the organizational culture is important. And the same way on the board side, the board share is hugely important for making sure the systems and the governance and the standards are met. And the board culture, and that starts with understanding what you're supposed to be doing, which is, you know, we like to point to this a lot, is that only half of boards actually evaluate annually their CEO. That's basic hygiene. Right. 
Like you're supposed to hire, fire, and manage your CEO as your board. Only half. Only half. Less than half, 48%. And if they don't evaluate their CEO, they don't also evaluate their own performance as a board. Correct? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Do you have any good examples to leave us optimistic about yes. this? Yes. Yeah. It's you no, know, when I, I just had lunch for real, I just had lunch with uh, somebody who, a headhunter who does a lot of searches. And we've been doing a lot of work with CEO search committees and trying to think of like, how do we make this 10% better? And I, I asked this person, like, which is the best CEO search committee that you've ever worked with? Now, this person works in the nonprofit, like the general nonprofit sector and the Jewish nonprofit sector. And this person pointed to a Jewish day school. And she's like, it's all about the people. It's really all about the people. And if you get the right people in a board that has the back and holds a, the accountability of the CEO, and therefore enables that organization to get the results that they need, that's the virtual cycle. That's the virtuous cycle that we need. And there are absolutely examples of that. That's one of the things that we want to tease out is like, what are some of the good news here? Because again, right. let's stop vetching. Right, right. No, and in the, in the lay leadership commission that we both work together at Leading Edge, the openness of folks to really invest in a healthy relation between lay and professional is really um, positive. some data points that should scare us in terms of leadership and some data points that should make us optimistic. Okay. Let's start with our whole community. There are 9,500 Jewish organizations in the United States. By conservative estimates, 75% of those leaders who are leading those organizations will turn over in the next, let's call it five years. That's over 7,000 leaders if we're doing a one-to-one -one, you know, replacement. And to scare us even further, we've, we do some work with the movements, the different religious streams. And there was one stream in particular who they have about 5,000 clergy cantors and executive directors of synagogues and, and rabbis who are part of a pension board. Half of those are turning 65 in the next five years. How many rabbis are being churned out by any of the seminaries that are not? you know, orthodox, like a fraction of that. So there is a real supply and demand kind of problem. That's, that's one thing that I would say is like, ah, that's, that's the thing that keeps us going and is the reason why we were created in the first place. The second thing that's like, ah, is you alluded to this in the work that we've done looking at employees over the last three years and their satisfaction, we have seen that more than half of the employees that we've surveyed want to leave our sector in less than five years. That is not a healthy churn rate. A good churn rate is 15%, maybe 20%. And when more than half of your employees are saying, are like looking elsewhere, they're not doing their best work now. So they're not fully engaged now. And that's, that's one of the things that we really are looking to, to solve. On the good side, we have seen organizations, especially with new leadership, when you have a new CEO, that's like that's such a great pivot moment, like a real inflection point for an organization, that have done 180s in terms of staff satisfaction, staff results, and organizational results. There are a lot of examples that we can point to of 
CEOs who understands who understand that it takes a team to get the kind of organizational results that they need, and they're just smart. They really are. Now, to, to get it more concretely, we've had about 50 organizations who have worked with us over three years to do different studies and whatnot. Those 50 organizations, about three-fourths of those, have cut their staff turnover by half over, over the period of time because they've really focused on organizational culture, holding their management to different types of performance management standards, all of the fundamentals that are important for organizational management. Something that I don't know if you thought of in, in any systemic way is the models we have for leadership in the world today are not particularly encouraging. Like our political leaders, you know. Right. Yeah. Do you, do you see that having any impact in our own leadership development or our own leadership behavior? I think if anything, there's we've certainly been hearing from younger folks that they're just fed up. They're like, oh my God, the grown-ups are not taking care of it, you know, quote unquote grown-ups. Like we're just gonna get in there. And there is there is a certain drive for that uh, and fear. There's a lot of there's a lot of fear and a lot of um, one of the things that we that we measure in organizations psychological safety in organizations because those are those are really important for a team to do its best work. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that there's a lot of psychological drainage, especially in the age of the political climate, the rhetoric, the the inability to bring your whole self to work. Right now, when you talk about leadership training, yeah, any sort of training, any. Uh, educational process, it assumes that there is an experience that is worthwhile to transmit to the younger, to the... Now, today, we live in a world where experience is not really that useful because the world changes so fast. Mm -hmm. So what models of training, of, of development work in a system where tradition doesn't really help you, experience doesn't really help you that much? It's a really good point. I never thought of it that way. And I think the model still works of, if you look at the Center for Creative Leadership has said, if you want to find a recipe for creating a leader, it's the 70-20-10 rule. 70% on the job, stretch, let them explore, let them innovate, let them fail, make sure that you have a safety net under them, you need a good manager and you need a good portfolio. 20% is networking and coaching like a real feedback group, networking with mentors and that. 10% is in the classroom, it's writing, it's getting a book, it's those types of things. I think the model still holds. It's just that 70% that what we've found is portfolios are just too narrow. Like they're just too narrow. There isn't enough room for experimentation, especially in the nonprofit sector, because funders don't look kindly on failure. And when you experiment, you're not necessarily always going to succeed. So it's... It's interesting because experience does, in so many ways, help professionals really maximize their own potential. And we see different models of people being able to do that at a much, at a much lower, at a much younger age. So, like apprenticeships, you know, looking at that model as opposed to like you, you go to you go for a bachelor's degree for four years, you learn about the things that other people do. There's so many bachelor's programs now that are like, no, 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 you actually start your own business. 
you know, entrepreneurship, or you right. have an internship that's a lot more active than just like writing a paper about whatever you fall in love with on the topic. Um, but I think the model might still hold. It's that 70, 20, 10. It's like you need the feedback loop, you need the opportunity to stretch, and you also need some kind of a rigor if you're thinking about context. And I guess it's a problem to find mentors that have an experience that is relevant to you. It goes more to life wisdom than to actual job exactly. mentorship, correct? Exactly. Like, yeah, that's why we see like mentors and coaches are very different. Right. Mentors, like, I think we're we're going to be blessed with like a wonderful generation of mentors, like those folks like Mary Shrave, like the people who've built our organization and seen so much of our history and created so much of our history. The issue is that that needs to be translated into current climate. Yeah, because like, right, like they, they were leaders in a very different, exactly. different uh, exactly. context. Exactly. And what we see is like, if, if, you know, some of the best leaders are teachers, so there is, there is a certain level of education when you're working with someone younger who's working in a different context to be able to help them suss out the lessons, not just transplant what you learned in a similar situation and say, that's what you're going to learn. Coaches are really the ones that, I mean, coaching is like the biggest fad now, and it's really about really making sense in the moment of different situations, helping you work through real time, just in time kinds of problems. And I think both of those are, are, can be incredibly valuable, especially as, to your point, experience is, is changing. Like the, the nature of work is changing. And the nature of problems are changing. What is one trend that you see from your perch that we're not paying attention to in how leadership is training and how the, is changing and how the workplace is changing. Yeah. Attention. I think attention, what we know is that Jewish nonprofit professionals, just like the world at large, is being torn and pulled in so many different ways by the little black rectangle that's on this very table, which is our phone that pings every minute and our attention span and our ability to give attention to problems, I think is one of the biggest problems that, that set aside really visionary leaders who can keep focus and can do deep thinking and therefore problem solving and those who are just From the many buzzwords, new ideas, uh, new fads that are coming in, which one's the one that you would absolutely ignore? Say, just discard that, that's a fad. So everybody's talking about it, but that's not gonna be real. Honestly, I think that there is a fad or, or there is a, a, a trope when we talk about culture and employee satisfaction and happiness that we look at employees and, and an organization as a family. There really is that, that kind of language. If you look at like Simon Sinek, who I'm a huge fan of, but he will say, like, how can you bring your whole self to work? The only time that you bring your whole self is really with a family. There's a certain level of unconditional love and acceptance and all of that. And I completely disagree with that. I think at the workplace, it's absolutely a team. It is absolutely a team. Just like Netflix with its, its original PowerPoint deck that whoever made that, I think it was Reed Hastings said, this is a team, it's not a family, which means that you actually have to deliver. And there, if you're not going to play well, 
you're going to get benched just like, you know, Tom Brady or whoever, you know, would be in the New, the New England Patriots. I think that's like, we can't go too far into employee satisfaction and call it happiness. It's not about that. It's engagement. It's always going to be work. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is fun. Thank you so much to Gali Cooks. You can learn more about Gali's work and Leading Edge works at leadingedge.org. In a moment, we'll preview next week's episode. But first, thank you so much for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, causes or issues you want us to cover, conspiracy theories that you've discovered, whatever you want to tell us. Just write us at podcast at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. Next week, we'll talk to Yossi Prager, Executive Director of the Avi Chai Foundation. Philanthropists have a unique role to play in American society because they're the only ones who don't have short-term accountability and therefore have the freedom to experiment. Be sure to subscribe in your podcast app to catch that episode. I'll leave you with this thought attributed to both the Alter of Nobarodok and the Alter of Kalman. Man wants to achieve greatness overnight. And he also wants to sleep well that night too. So sleep well, keep giving, and join us next time for What Gives. <laughs>